Welcome to Pop Parenting, Season 2, where therapist and author Avram Nadigal and myself, Ellie Bass, drink a lot of coffee and discuss family dynamics, relationships, parenting, and more each week using 2000s movies to illustrate complex situations and examples. By the way, Pop Parenting is now rated in the top 20 Jewish podcasts to watch in 2021, all thanks to you. So thank you for all of your support, feedback, and movie suggestions. Please keep them coming. And don't forget to subscribe. We're available on all podcast platforms. Okay, here we go. Um, Okay, welcome back, everyone. Pop Parenting. We are in the aughts. And I was really happy that we were doing this movie. Um, High Fidelity. High Fidelity was like so much fun when it came out. The the music was so good. Um, I think the soundtrack was actually nominated for for a Grammy, which is so cool. Can can we just pause for one second? Yeah. Acknowledge the fact that a song was mentioned. It's one of my favorite songs, my favorite Katie songs. You know what I'm talking about? No, which one? I did not catch it the first time I saw the film. Um, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I don't even I know what play. that is. No, no, no. By who? Gordon Lightfoot. You know the song. A legend lives on in the Chippewa <laughs> town in the lake that they call Mishumi. You, yeah, I was anti. I was anti Gordon Lightfoot growing up. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You and your Joy Division. <laughs> this uh, is so not punk rock enough when I was into Canadiana. <laughs> oh, Ellie, you gotta listen. It's about it's about a shipwreck that happened in Lake Superior where um, all these wow. sailors uh, died. It's such a haunting song. It's so okay. Let me check it out. Jack, but he so he, Jack, uh, not Jack Blades. That's from Night Ranger. Jack Black. <laughs> Jack Black um, mentions it. I forget why. It's one of his top five lists that he mentioned the, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which I was like, boom, <laughs> couldn't believe it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it was such a nerdy music pleasure, this movie, like so much fun. Um, and I just love the characters. I, I think they're just um, thoughtful, neurotic, interesting, artistic. For me, it's just a pleasure to kind of dive into that. I remember that world of being just obsessed with music and shows and albums and hanging out with people. That's all you talked about. And for me, one of the you know, I realized one of the quotes from that film could be a whole session itself where they say it's not, it's what you like, not what you are like. And, and that came up a couple times in the movie, right? Like that you don't have to deal with yourself as long as you like cool stuff. Um, and that's how you identify yourself. And I remember that world, right? That was very much the arts world that I was a part of. Like, as long as you like cool stuff, who cares if you're like, you know, messed up. Um, yeah. yeah, I uh, there's a, a bass the bass player in, in two of my bands, uh, Warren Wolanski, if you're listening. Hello. Um, so he's now a successful uh, multimedia guy in Montreal. Warren Wolanski would go into his bedroom, Ellie, he would have his tapes of fish shows, and Grateful <laughs> Dead shows, and he would reorg. I, I'd come in. I'm like, what are you doing now? And just like John Cusack <laughs> in that one scene where he what, what he was re- what was he doing? He was he's organizing his, his record collection in autobiographical order. <laughs> it was amazing. It's great. So Warren would do that. And every now and then he would like, <laughs> no, what I'm doing is I'm changing the shows. And he'd have like 
shell and he, this would be a this Amazing. would be like a full week project that he would do right. so this film <laughs> if you lived in the 90s and you knew yeah. people like this was very accurate this was totally not hyperbolic at all <laughs> <laughs> totally <laughs> totally we used to have a joke about a guy named uh, one of our friends steve who was like a you know this big um, white guy with dreads who was like super into punk rock movie music and we used to joke that he would just jump out of nowhere randomly like oh man that on rocks you got to check this out and yeah it was like the passion and the obsession of music was just such a huge part of people's personalities it literally was a personality trait at that time um yeah okay should i do our what on one foot and then yeah, we'll just jump right in on one foot. yep okay so high fidelity we need, ellie we need yeah. theme music. you know what we need we, you know what we need we need some theme music, you know, so like, no, I'm, I'm not joking. Like when you, when it's the uh, standing on one foot, we need like a, um, like, a, I don't know, some sort of like a something about Ellie's standing on one foot. Or just I'll like a drum roll, a, some kind of drum track. Okay. Fair I'll enough. We'll, we'll look and see what we can find. Um, yeah. All right. On one foot, high fidelity, John Cusack, Lisa Bonet. So cool. Um, his sister, Joan Cusack, who's in this film, and the young Jack Black that I completely forgot about that he was in this movie when I started to watch it. I was like, oh, yeah. So, um, and the okay. other guy, the, the store, the uh, other clerk in the store. Yeah. What film was he in who played the? Oh, he was, wasn't he in, um, uh, he was in, um, uh, oh, Ellie, was he in a Jerry Maguire? Was he the babysitter? Know. He was the babysitter in Jerry Maguire. Oh yeah, that's right. He was same role, the same, same messenger role. bag, <laughs> same messenger bag, it's and really same funny. sort of like really sensitive. Yeah, like, totally. You know, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good take. All right. So okay, it's based on a book by Nick Hornby. Um, and in fact, Nick Hornby commented when he saw the film, he was like, it was like John Cusack was just reading out of my book. He, was, he just felt like it was such a good adaptation. So it was, that was really nice to hear. Um, so basically, Rob, it, which is John Cusack's character, owns a record store, used to be a DJ, loves making lists. Um, and he basically is failing and, you know, he's failing at love. He's, he lists, you know, the whole movie is about his top five breakups right the worst breakups of all time and ending with his most recent breakup with his girlfriend Laura of a couple of years and who I guess you know he really thought she was the one she thought he was the one but neither of them was mature enough to really say anyone was the one um, and you kind of go through the movie as they've just broken up he's trying to figure himself out and then he decides I'm gonna go revisit all of the people that were my top four breakups and try to find out what's wrong with me or why we broke up or what was going on like maybe actually it wasn't my fault um or maybe i wasn't as bad you know maybe it wasn't really about me being a horrible loser it was something else um and so the movie is him traversing through these old relationships you know realizing that Often he was the one that made bad choices, even though he, in his own mind, had developed this story that he just always gets dumped um, and he's not good enough. And so it's sort of a mixture of that experience and him trying to work out with his ex-girlfriend, Laura, 
what that relationship is and whether or not they can actually be together. She ends up dating this like super weirdo world music guy (laughs) played by Tim Robbins, which is amazing, um, which drives um, Rob crazy. And he has these two friends that he works in the record store with. And it's also about like, what are you doing with your life? Are you in stuck mode? Or are you in like, like in your newsletter that you do, are you stuck or unstuck, right? Are you in stuck mode where everything just has to stay the same? Um, Or are you actually going to take a leap and move forward in some way? And it seems like all of the characters in the movie are asking that question in one way or another. Um, I think that's pretty much it in the end, right? He and Laura tend to work it out. Jack Black actually performs with his band. Um, the other guy that works in the record store gets a girlfriend, which they never thought he would do. Um, and, and, she, and by the way, that, that girlfriend, isn't she, uh, wasn't she on Roseanne? Wasn't she yeah. Roseanne? Yeah. yeah, totally. In fact, now she's on The View. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, uh, uh, Sarah, I can't remember her last name now. But yeah, so basically the movie kind of wraps up with everybody sort of moving forward in a, in a certain way. There's some incredible cameo appearances. Uh, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones is one of his girlfriends. Um, that's the big breakups. She plays Charlie, who's this, this like, you know, really... Um, uh, you know, quote unquote, like incredibly awesome intellectual, like powerhouse that he never feels good enough for. And, um, uh, and Lisa Bonet, as I mentioned, plays a musician who plays in a club and then sort of becomes friends with them. And they eventually sort of go on one or two dates. Um, so there's some very cool cameos Some really, like I said, the soundtrack is unbelievable. Um, and that's pretty much high fidelity on one foot. And now there's a Hulu. They redid it as, on Hulu as a series starring Zoe Kravitz as the Rob character. Um, and I watched the first two episodes, I think. Um, yeah, super interesting. Again, a really good focus on music. So kind of an interesting take on it. All right. And by the way, we should just met for those who are paying attention, Catherine uh, Zeta-Jones, am I saying her name right? Catherine mm-hmm. Zeta-Jones, uh, was, uh, appeared uh, briefly in our discussion last call or the one, be- no, the one before. No, the one before traffic. when we did traffic, right. Traffic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so <clears throat> let's uh, let's jump into it here because, uh, I mean, this, this really, this film was in my wheelhouse. I mean, this, <laughs> you know, commitment phobia and anxiety and, commitment right. and all this kind of stuff. But here's the angle I wanted to take Ellie for, um, for today's uh, talk. Uh, again, our podcast is called pop parenting. And what I'm always looking for in these films, uh, in the John Hughes films and in a film like this is will the filmmaker go to the family of origin piece? Now I don't mean that they're thinking that they're thinking about family systems theory. What I'm curious is, are they going to throw a bone at the audience to suggest that this isn't all internal. It isn't all about John Cusack's, or whatever, Rob, his uh, his brain chemistry, or that he's wounded in some tragic way, that there is something about the way he relates in his romantic relationships that is tied to unfinished business in his family. Again, right. from a family systems perspective, we pick people to marry at the same level of emotional maturity as ourselves. And what that means is that there are no angels and devils in relationships. It is two people similarly matched emotionally, but have opposite 
um, uh, ways of managing their anxiety. So I always give the example of extroverts and introverts can marry um, and uh, they balance each other's immaturities out because mm. the extrovert gets anxious in an extroverted way and the introvert gets anxious in an introverted way. Uh, but culturally, we don't see it that way. We see the extrovert as mature and a leader and this and the and the introvert as depressed and melancholic. And how did right. he end how did he end up with her? Like that kind of stuff. Well, the film does this too, because I, I just want to jump. Okay, I'm gonna jump around here a little bit here. But I, I want to read something here. This is from a review of the film from a woman named Stephanie Zacharik from Salon. And this is what she has to say about now. Oh my god, Ellie, I am going to butcher this woman's name. Laura's character. The actress's name is Iben. I don't even know how to say this. H J E J L E. How would you say that? I thought it was like like almost like Catherine Heigl. Like I don't know. I can't remember. I, I also looked at it, but then well, failed to follow. I'm not even going to bother trying to pronounce that last name. But her first name is Iben. Uh, she plays a great role in the film. This is what this. Um, uh, writer from Salon had to say. So uh, Laura is supremely likable. She's so matter of fact and grounded that it's perfectly clear why she's become exasperated with a guy like Rob who perpetually refuses to grow up. But you can also see how her patience and calm are exactly the things he needs. So what this writer is doing and what this film sometimes portrays until we meet Rob's mother, by the way, right. what they're trying to say is that in life, be very careful who you pick because there's losers and there's winners. Make sure you pick the winners. Um, and, you know, life's a crapshoot. Right. So Luck of the jaw. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I, I have to say that this is, um, this is not only uh, a common view in uh, pop culture, it's also true in certain psychotherapies um, that, that, you know, if you read most books on commitment phobia, there is something there is something either organically wrong so there's a brain deficit somewhere um, or some sort of trauma but the general feeling and commitment phobic literature it, generally it's men and the the advice always ends with for the women run 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 because mm -hmm. you'll never fix the commitment phobe um thank god when i was a commitment phobe i was exposed to different a different theory as anybody who listens to this podcast knows it was David Snarch's work, um, Dr. David Snarch's work, uh, who showed me a different way of understanding commitment phobia. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that later. But right now, <clears throat> I want to come back to the piece what the filmmaker does. And, and thankfully, the filmmaker does do that. So there's a little Ellie, you remember the scene, that scene with Rob's mom? Yeah, when he's on the phone with her and she's crying that she he broke that her and her, he and his girlfriend broke up. Yes. Right. So I'm going to I'm just going to read stone it. cold. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm just going to read a little bit of verbatim from from that script. And then I'd like to open this up and discuss this piece, because I think actually this is the most important piece in the film. Mm hmm. But it doesn't go anywhere. But I think right. it's important. To, and I think this counteracts the narrative of the, um, the writer from Salon. OK, so Rob breaks up with Laura. His mother is hysterical on the phone, which is almost funny, right? Right. Um, until it's your mother. Sobbing, like it's, sobbing on the phone. With yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. So we're going to come back to this because this touches on something we've talked about in this podcast called Fusion, mm. uh, where, where you have two people, um, in this case, it would be a, a son and a mother, 
where the, the, the son's pain not only becomes the mother's pain, but she actually feels it more than her son. It's as if Laura broke up with her, right? Right. So that's quite literally the definition of fusion in relationships. Okay, mom, I knew this was going to happen. I just knew it. Rob, then what are you getting so upset about? Mom, what did Laura say? Do you know why she left? Rob, it's got nothing to do with marriage, if that's what you're getting at. Mom, so you say. I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear her side of it, Rob. Right. Mom, for the last time, I'm telling you, Laura didn't want to get married. She's not that kind of girl, to use a phrase. That's not what happens now. Mom, well, I don't know what happens now. Apart from you meet someone, you move in, and she goes. You meet someone, you move in, and she goes. Rob, shut up, Mom. And he hangs up the phone. <laughs> okay. Um, Ellie, I'm just, I'm just I'm kind of curious to hear from you. When you saw that scene, any, mm -hmm. anything come up for you at all? Any, like, what, what was your reaction? Why, why do you think the filmmaker put that in the film? Because um, really, there was no introduction of adults, uh, parents at all. You don't see uh, any no. parents except for this one scene. Do you have a, a, a sense of how come? It kind of came out of left so field. So I haven't read the book, so I don't know how much that figured in the narrative of the book in terms of his story. But I think, look, watching it, you can, you know, you can kind of see where he feels totally on a raft with this whole experience where the mom is taking it so personally and blaming him for all of the mishaps of his relationships that there's no room for support. There's no like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Um, you know, when I think about it as a mom, you know, if my kids were to call me and tell me they broke up with someone they cared about, I would be worried about them. But so I, I think as a mother, I think that was an, it was interesting to watch because like, OK, that's super weird. Um, but I could see from him clearly this was a regular thing because he was so matter of fact annoyed with her for being that way. Right. Like he expected her to be that way. So clearly that is a pattern. <clears throat> um, and interestingly, actually, there is a mention of parents because Laura mentions when her father dies that her mother never told her father that they'd broken up. And so there's also this kind of weird, like, um, family secrets family thing going on right where there's like this tremendous sensitivity and and clearly some kind of pressure on them that their parents just thought these two were going to get married and there was a whole narrative around that in terms of what life was going to look like once they got married and that amount of pressure i think on both of them um was part of the relationship. So I, yeah, I think her, I think her, you know, Rob's mom's response was clearly not one of support and, and like making him feel seen, heard and understood. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, in, in my office, um, there are certain relationships and, and it's, it's not, it's not gender specific because it, it, it goes back and forth. So in, in my office, um, situations where, uh, a, a, you know, a wife will say to me, um, you know, he, he's on the phone with his mother, like discussing our marriage, every, like every second night. Me, that, that's almost like 
the, his mother, his biological mother is part of our marriage. Like there's three right. of us right. and it drives her, the, the woman, right? Crazy because she's feeling like she's sharing the bedroom with her mother-in-law. Like right. the mother is still there. Right. I've heard, I've heard guys say the same thing where, you know, they're buying a house or they're doing this and whether it's her father or her mother, um, always consulting, always, some people are, are tied to the financial teat, as we say, that they haven't left home. It's a general idea that Dr. Bowen used to talk about, um, that you could, you could leave home physically, meaning that you're married and you have kids and you this, but you have not left home emotionally or you have not left home financially or you have not left home cognitively. And this is a case where Rob has left home. He owns a record store. He lives on his own, but he has not left home. He is oriented towards his mother and his mother is oriented towards him. We don't have enough background to understand why. I can almost guarantee you it's due to, usually it's due to, um, marital conflict so rob's parents and then what would happen is rob's mother would double down on her focus on a child which would which would regulate her anxiety and allow her to avoid working on her marriage and then rob would in kind would would respond to that sort of focus it could be either they're fighting or they're always having coffee together so it doesn't always have to be negative right. Um, right. but in, but what but the end result though <clears throat> is that so long as rob is emotionally oriented towards regulating his mother's anxiety in a way. So this is reciprocal anxiety being traded back and forth between Rob and his mom. He will never truly be able to give himself over and find the space for himself in another relationship. And it will be subconscious for him. So he will continue going to therapy, for example, in a therapist's office saying, or going to past girlfriends saying, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And they'll tell him, but that's not the problem. That's a symptom. The problem is that he's never truly left home which opens up a whole sort of question, you know, of what the work that I do is helping these young people. When I say young, I'm talking about people could be in their forties or fifties when this happens. Mm -hmm. This is not a 20 something thing. Mm -hmm. How do you help people emotionally or financially leave home to, to start a new family with clear boundaries from their fam their nuclear family. Okay. Um, and it's tricky. It's, it's very hard because in a case like this, for example, if Rob told his mom, if let's say Rob didn't tell his mom anything about Laura, right? He better expect his mother to get very angry with him, right? She might think she might say, You're selfish. You always used to tell me things. You were my best friend. How can you, you know, so there'll be a reaction to this. And also, Rob probably gets something out of this, meaning that there is something he gets out of these fights with his mom. Mm -hmm. You know, that whole encounter where he's like, Oh, shut up, mom, and he hangs up the phone, right? right? It, 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 you have to, there's something reciprocal about this with people who haven't quote unquote left home, that they're still getting into fights with their parents the way they did when they were 15, but they're in their mid fifties and they're still fighting this way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, uh, that that encounter in the movie, when I was watching it as a relationship therapist, I think that that stuckedness with his mother pretty much answers all of his questions but the way he is approaching it he'll never find the answers that he's uh looking for so hmm. i wanted to start there because i think that for at least from a pop parenting perspective for any of our listeners who have kids in their i would say late teens early 20s my caution here would be be very careful and tread lightly 
when you have very strong feelings or thinking about the partners that your kids pick to marry. I don't care if it's different religion. I don't care if it's gay. I don't care. Whatever it is. I'm not saying you can't, you know, you could feel things and you can think things. And depending on the nature of your relationship, you can even share that. But be very careful when you take it on as yours, that this is somehow a violent, that you are being violated. That right. You, you are experiencing the trauma of your child's relationship. Right. Your choices has- are making me um, are, are ruining my life. Exactly. And because right. um, that's a situation where, um, you know, you have situations where either I have young adults in my practice in their mid 40s, late 40s, who cannot establish a relationship because they are so afraid of upsetting their parents. And mm. they'll say this to me, Ellie. They will, they will just come out and say this to me, that I'm so scared to bring partners home to meet my parents because they reject everybody who I bring home and I don't know what to do about it. And it really, they, they're so scared of losing their parents or upsetting their parents. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I have people who are like, oh, I haven't talked to my parents in you know 15 years because of what they once said uh, before I got married about my partner. And they mm-hmm. cut off the entire family, right? right? And then they have to deal with the consequences of no emotional, sometimes financial uh, support at all from their family. And then the right. marriage buckles because, you know, anyways, all this to say, I thought that was a very important scene. There are my thoughts about that. Yeah. I think that, I, I think that was really interesting. Actually, let me ask you a question because somebody um, came to me a few weeks ago and they presented a situation that, you know, talking about cutoff between parents and kids where the parent had cut their kid off and the kid and the parent had cut the kid off because the kid wasn't adhering to the unspoken rules of that relationship. Meaning like you're supposed to treat, you know, be, you know, here, call me three times a day, tell me what's going on in your life. Like I want, I need to be part of everything you're doing like that fusion relationship. And this, uh, so, you know, the, the kid who's not a kid, you know, recently got married and they're having a relationship with their husband. And so what do you do? Like in that case, when a parent says like, you're not being the kid I want you to be, and this isn't a, a case of actually being threatened in any way. Um, you're just not being fused with me the way I need you to be. Therefore, I'm not going to speak to you anymore. How, what's the, how do you deal with that as a kid? So I, I can't touch, you know, I don't know the details. I can tell you right now, whatever details this person is sharing with you, they, they are picking and choosing things to create a narrative that justifies right. their decision. That's what happens. That's how, that's how we, we lower cognitive dissonance about decisions we make. Mm. Um, but I think it's very important to, to be clear about what cutoff means. Because people, I think, people use the term, but they don't, what they describe isn't cut off. Mm. So cut off is a multi-generational process of how people in your family have dealt with anxiety, meaning that it's almost like um, hair color. It's, you learn it through osmosis. So it's not a, it's not a conscious decision. Um, It's like a mechanism in the family. Like when people get upset, this is how we deal with it. Right. Exactly. And like in Silence of the Lambs, where uh, that horrible scene where he does some horrible scene, which we're not going to talk about, but they, and, (laughs) and, and, and the cop says, 
uh, Hannibal that Lecter's, escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah, Hannibal Lecter's blood pressure never rate went above like sixty-two right. or something. You know, people who cut off people from their family, their blood pressure and their heart rate doesn't raise. So they'll say, "You'll." Uh, mm. By the way, I have quite a few of you know uh, people in my practice who will say to me, "Look, my 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 mother hasn't spoken to her sister in twenty years, so I haven't spoken to my aunt and my cousins in twenty years." And you know what? Right. It's better for everyone. It really is just better for everyone. Mm. So it's. It's, it, you know, in my world, in, in the family systems world, cutoff is the most extreme thing you can do to regulate anxiety in a family. But the people who right. have grown up with it, it's like, you know. That's just it, what you do. If you have macaroni and cheese on Sunday, you give your kids macaroni and cheese, and that's just what you do. Mm. Um, so if this person who is speaking just to you is saying to you, um, you know, with almost um, very low reactivity, you know, I, I cut, you know, look, I mean, you know, Ellie, it's important to know when someone does something to you, you have to get them out of your life, right? Kind of like, remember when Trump was was president and people were saying very calmly, well, then you have to stop talking to those people in the family. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember holding my head going, what are you, like, th these were like well-known opinion makers and stuff, telling people to cut right. other people out of, for politics. Right. P people don't understand the ramifications of cutoff in a family, right? are extreme, meaning that the symptoms. So when Dr. Bowen mm. measured cutoff over four generations, stuff like um, schizophrenia, five, six generations down of cutoff. So I don't want to get into all the minutia, but schizophrenia is complex. But cutoff begets cutoff. And then there's all these symptoms that happen uh, mm. because of cutoff, you know, back stuff, um, uh, uh, abdominal uh, stuff. Um, you know, from a psychological perspective, all the mental health stuff. So cutoff right. has the most extreme symptoms for people in the next generation or the generation after that. Uh, hmm. But if you grow up in it, if you grow up in it, it's just, you know, it, it is what it is. So I don't know if this person who was speaking to you truly meant cutoff or what they're saying is, I'm so hurt right now. I can't speak to you for the, the you know, for the time being. Um, no, no. They were saying they just didn't know what to do because their parent had said they won't speak to them. And they were like, I don't know how to deal with this. But but I hear what you're saying. I, you know, there's clearly other pieces to the thing, to the whole um, uh, situation. But I, I think it's so interesting what you're saying, because then if we come back to the movie, you know, what are we seeing? We're seeing he can, has a consistent pattern of like cut off, right? In different ways, which eat with each of these girlfriends, right? Well, I, you know, I, it's interesting, Ellie, because I was thinking about, um, you know, is a breakup, is a breakup, a, is a breakup, a cutoff? Mm. Um, I'm not so sure. I, I have to give this some more, some more thought. I, I'm not so sure. What I see here, this is how I see this. What I see here, I see a young man, and, man, and clearly I, you know, I mean, the, the character of John Cusack, I can relate to at a very deep level when I was in my <laughs> 20s. So let me be clear. It's stung. This movie stung. Um, what, what I see here is, is a young man who is fused with his mother and doesn't know what to do about it. Doesn't even know it's a problem, by the way. Right. right. But he want, but he's also a young man and he wants to have a relationship and he wants to have sex and all that kind of stuff. And as soon as the relationship gets too close and gets too hot, he, he doesn't have the internal skills to deal with the natural um, uh, intimacy of, of an emotionally committed relationship. And then 
he ends it he and he always ends it when he when the fantasy of a new relationship kicks in and it gives him those endorphins of something new right i don't know if i see his i don't know if i see the breakup so much as a cutoff as it is um a man who's always chasing the dragon of a high you know the people who shoot heroin what they'll say is they're always chasing that original high with a subsequent um uh um doses of heroin and they never get back to the right. original high but in a relationship you can so every time you start a new relationship you actually do get the novelty of a new person a new hair a new smell and so you do actually um you do get that and so people who have trouble with commitment right at, at some sort of you know uh whether it's on principle or deep level um they do want to be with a person and grow older if they want kids or it's something that i wanted i wanted kids but you 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 haven't developed the tools to be able to sit with the boredom sometimes to sit mm. with the frustration sometimes to to sit with uh, you know different decisions on which restaurant we're going to go to right. and the temptation to start a new relationship where everything is golden again is just so delicious it's it's very hard not to to, to get into that. So that's how I see his immaturity playing itself out a bit of that Peter Pan sort of thing. Um, and he, ta- he Yeah, he, he also that. seems to have like a fantasy, you know, like when he thinks of quote unquote relationship or quote unquote love, he has a whole narrative in his head about what that's supposed to look like um, as opposed to like what it's like. That, that's that's Ellie. That's an extremely important point for people who struggle with commitment. Before they even go on that first date, they and usually it's by the way very bright, creative people. They're mm. able to conjure up how my <laughs> life is going. It's kind of like when you buy a car or a new bag or you right. Know, you know you, you you've you written all, the entire novel already. Like by the time you're on the first date, like what right. exactly what this is going to look like, how it's supposed to be, and forever and ever and ever. Yeah. And, you know, they, Ellie, they say that, you know, when you're going on vacation, um, if you're strategically wise about it, pay attention to the week before the vacation, because it's sometimes the most sweetest part, the anticipation of the vacation, not the vacation itself. That's mm. there's something about getting ready to go on vacation that if you ignore that part, you're missing the juiciest part, because once your plane lands and you're in Florida and you're on the beach, the novelty goes away and you're just, you know, you're getting sunburned. and your kids are you're still having to make lunch for everyone (laughs) exactly so so people people who who uh confuse right the natural uh, arcs and ebbs and flows of relationships and believe that it's that beginning delicious thing that's supposed to always go on because it Mm. it makes them feel so good um they're going to keep leaving their relationships and chasing after it i just want to mention one thing here uh, that i thought would be important one of Dr. Bowen's observations when studying families was that human beings regulate anxiety, like whenever we get upset, in two ways. Now, you, there's sub there's subsections of those two ways, but there's two ways. One is relationships, so we regulate our anxiety, meaning if we can't do it ourselves. So what we do is we look towards relationships to help regulate our anxiety. So people who are more immature do that, or we do it with things drugs shopping sex so although sex i guess you could say is relationships but so when when you grow up in a family and in your family there's a certain amount of chronic anxiety right so uh, for example my father 
regulated his moods. My father would get quite depressed at times. How he would break his depression, he didn't have the natural tools to do that. So what he would mm -hmm. do, he would buy a car every eight months. He would lease a car. And he'd go on this like roller coaster of emotion, like, oh, it's coming. And he'd do the research. And then he'd get right. the car. Ellie, like clockwork, three, four months later, he'd get bored of the car. Then his sort of depression would kick in. It would, mm. and then, and this went on. I, I, I probably watched this, you know, throughout my adolescence. It was very predictable, right. Right? right? Other people, other people, they regulate their anxiety by getting into fights with their spouse all the time. If you loved me, you would. And then their spouse loves them, and they feel good, but then they feel bad, so they turn to their spouse, and they, and there's this sort of. Um, and just and also just to clarify for people who are listening, if maybe you're just jumping in on this episode, like when we're talking about anxiety on this on this particular podcast, we're not just talking about clinical anxiety. We're talking about anxiety as this amorphous group of feelings and thoughts that allow you allow your whole nervous system, you know, emotionally and psychologically and physically to be on alert. So it isn't the clinical anxiety necessarily, it's the cumulative thoughts, feelings, insecurities, and worries that people are sitting in and doing their best not to deal with because they're uncomfortable. So I just wanted to clarify that. If yeah. people are jumping in, because when you use the word anxiety today, it is so deeply associated with clinical um, anxiety that needs medication. And that's not what we're talking about all the time here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I do have to say, I mean, I, when when we're talking, when people use the word clinical anxiety, they usually mean anxiety attacks and panic attacks and, and this sort of thing. That is a, a side effect of this anxiety you're talking about. Right. The chronic nature for me of all of my what if this will happen? What if that will happen? What if I will be single the rest of my life? What if my child will be diagnosed with Down syndrome? What if I lose my job? All those what ifs come from our family of origin. So Ellie, your chronic anxiety and my chronic anxiety will be different. The, the texture of it will be different. Right. The content right. of it will be different. Panic attacks and anxiety attacks and all this, there obviously is a, a, a biochemical component to it. But they're related to your chronic anxiety. So the more that we avoid dealing with our anxiety that we inherited in our family of origin, the more we are likely to experience the symptoms of anxiety, insomnia, butterflies in the stomach, and of course, the most extremely panic attacks. Um, so they are related. I just want to be clear. And I think that sometimes, right. um, you know, it's something that I find, you know, a little unnerving for me is when I hear clinicians say things like, I'm talking about depression, not clinical depression. That is mm. a made up, uh, that is a made up. Right. Cause there's no test thing. for either of those things. Right. There, there is, there, there is no the sliding scale. Test. Yeah. It's a, it's a continuum. It's just <laughs> right. a continuum. Yeah. Right. But uh, yeah. And I, so I think it's interesting because then when we turn to the movie, you can clearly see Rob is anxious, you know, he's, in the thick of it and and he's consistently anxious and he has different relationships with different types of people who have different ways of dealing with their anxiety right he has the girlfriend who um had also just broken up with someone and so they regulate their anxiety through you know being in a relationship with each other until one of them meets somebody else charlie you know Catherine zeta jones is character she regulates her anxiety as seeming like she's cool and she knows everything um, uh, and I think then this goes back to the salon article that you brought up at the beginning, 
with Laura, where Laura is perceived as not anxious and he's perceived as the one who's immature and has problems. But clearly, Laura has no idea where she is either. Well, she could, makes that quite clear. Yeah, let's look at that because I'm Ellie, I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot to mention this. When you take someone like Laura, right? Take someone like Laura. You know, Ellie, how they say, um, oh, what's the what's the term? Um, uh, it, it, it's the Jerry Maguire, you complete me stuff. So you take right. someone like Laura, right? So you think, so let's say Rob asked Laura, what do you see in me though? You know, so she'll say something like, you're cute. You know, you're funny. I see the potential in you, right? But that's not the reciprocity that I talk about in terms of the you complete me stuff. You see, Rob is in search in one way. Rob is in search of a guide, is in search of someone to um, spit shine his shoes mm. um, and, and help him function in the world as a mature adult as he's still right. a very immature teenager with his mother. Right. Yeah. So he's got this big problem, right? He's kind of like a melancholic, um, you know, lost soul. And Laura, right, is a woman searching to fix someone. And if right. you miss that, you don't understand what's happening because then all you'll see is Laura's mature, right? Right. What? Such a funny thing how she ends up with these mm. losers like Rob, but that is not what's happening. Right. Laura's Actually, that's immature. interesting because at the beginning of the film, it says she's a lawyer who works in uh, as a public defender, like which, even in her job what, twice. And what does that mean to you? Meaning like she even in her job, like she's a person who likes to help people. She's a person who wants who feels confident and good about herself. In, an, in a positive way, it's clearly connected to who she is, but that means it's also a way that she regulates her anxiety. I can tell you for a fact, Ellie, for a fact, that I would say most clinicians I know, okay, <laughs> do the work that they do as therapists. They need their clients. They right. need people to fix and to um, do something as a way of reminding themselves that um, they're either okay or good. And there's this weird sort of reciprocity uh, in this. And that's where therapists burn out because when a client pushes back and says, either I don't like the work that you're doing, or I don't think mm. you're a good therapist, it destroys them. And so they double down on their work and they try so much harder because mm. they need the client to get better. It's, it's mm. an immaturity that's working itself out with the, with the client and the therapist. And it's one of the reasons why um, one of the main, main differences in the 60s when Dr. Bowen was training psychiatry residents, he would say to them, if you can't fix the cutoff with your uncle, you are going to be of absolutely no use, sometimes worse. You'll be a problem for your patients who bring in cutoff into your office because you're going to get so anxious with it. You're going to keep trying to fix them in weird ways to work through, but you haven't worked through your own issues where right. in a previous generation, therapists would sit with their supervisors um, and just uh, work on their patients. That's how supervision would work. Mm. Bowen would say to people, he would do a three-generation diagram of all the psychiatry residents, and he would go, here's all your unfinished business. You shouldn't be seeing a client until you go back and start at least beginning the process of, of working on some of that kind of stuff. So wow. it's in the film, in the film, all of these characters, the record store employees, Laura, Rob, they all manifest their anxiety in different ways. And I think that the film does such a great job at 
you know, uh, saying that, yes, the Woody Allen type character, which is John Cusack, one could say the neurotic sort of, you know, can't have a relationship is one way. But Mm -hmm. if you take, look, take Jack Blades, his character. Jack Black. Jack Black. Jack, (laughs) do you know what Jack Blades is? No. The bass player from Night Ranger. Hey, very good 80s band. At least I like them. Um, (laughs) Sister Christian. Okay. Um, So anyways, so uh jack black's character right how he manifests his uh immature anxiety is conflict right. he finds conflict everywhere he, he'll right. pick a fight with anybody because that's his comfort zone so if right. you knew anything about his family of origin i can almost guarantee you that he probably saw his parents who were fighting all the time and everything was resolved through like bombastic fighting right and then the other guy you know passive guys no 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 like no one fight everybody get along i'm getting anxious oh you know <laughs> that's the kind of guy that grew up in a family where in, in our tradition we sh- we say shalom habayit at all costs so peace right. in the home peace in the home and how we do it is no one can fight so i don't want anyone to bring up anything at the supper table right or the shabbos table that's going to upset right. anyone and i have worked with many people like that and the consequences of that are often, speaking of clinical, a clinical depression, especially for women who have been told, you don't, you don't say anything that's going to upset your mother. Your mm. job is to elevate and put a smile on your face. And so these right. women come into my office and all they know how to do is please people. But if I, I, if I say to them, you know, Mary, it, it seems to me that that situation at work where you're being taken advantage of, I mean, how does it make you feel? Depressed. I'm just very depressed about it, mm-hmm. but they don't know how to get, they don't know how to muster the energy and say enough. <laughs> right. Like, this is not Mean- meanwhile, what they really want to do is murder someone in their sleep. <laughs> well, 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 so that's where they have the dreams, right? They have fantasies of killing cats and coming to my office going, right. what's wrong with me? You know? Yeah. So I, I think that this film does such a great job at describing, um, you know, this way that, I, that, that our immaturity plays itself out in different ways. And everyone in the film has a little bit of it. And if, you know, I hope that if, you know, um, when I watched this film, I was thinking uh, that, um uh, the main message for, for me that I'm hoping I leave our audience with is that uh, we pick people at the same level of emotional maturity as ourselves. So don't sweat it. Meaning the David mm. Starch line, which is one of my favorite lines about marriage. Everybody gets married for the wrong reasons, but it takes marriage to find out what the right reasons are. So when people are in my office, and they're like, mm, oh, but that's great. You know, we, you know, we have all these problems and it shouldn't be this way. And I look at them and I think that, you know, what I often will say to people is, oh, it has to be that way. Mm. It's, it, it's exactly the way it has to be. The question right. now is, what do you do with it? Right. Rob, how he dealt with it was, I'll just start another relationship. Right. And right. I think what how the film ends is Rob, you know, wrestling with this, realizing no relationship is going to save me from myself. Right. Yeah. Good movie. Love it. So fun. Okay. Is the next choice mine? Yeah. Well, hold on. I thought you did. Did you pick this one or did I pick this no, one? No, you did. Okay. Yeah. You get to pick the next one from the 2000s. <laughs> All right. We'll see. We'll surprise everyone. Okay. Amazing. So much fun. Thanks so much, Avram. Please, uh, for those of you listening, please um, subscribe, share with friends, let us know if you have movie suggestions. We really want to hear from you. Any feedback, um, you can find us on all the podcast platforms and you can feedback to us 
um, through the links in the liner notes. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Bye.